us, would you grab your Bible, if you have a Bible, or open up your device to Matthew chapter 15. We're calling this message Take Two. We're going to be in Matthew 15. We're starting in verse 29. So we continue to move verse by verse. We have backtracked uh, for this particular message. I moved ahead a couple of sections uh, when we did the, the message on, on this uh, rock, I will build my church, but we're going back to fill in some of the gaps Take two, Matthew 15, verse 29. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, Matthew 15, 30. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking and the crippled restored, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they may faint on the way. The disciples said to him, see if this sounds familiar, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. Those who who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. You can have a seat. Lord, may you write your word on our heart as we look at a take two of a second miracle feeding that occurs, occurred in your ministry. We know that you're now on the other side of the lake. You're in Gentile area. And you do a second feeding miracle, this time with 4,000 plus women and children. And there is a, a very important message that we will share as we look at what's picked up and the symbolism there. But what's before us also is many second opportunities, a second opportunity for the people of the Decapolis as you return there after being asked to leave, a second opportunity for seeds that were planted to be watered in that region, a second opportunity for a feeding miracle, and indeed a second opportunity for the disciples to have their eyes open to your power and majesty and your heart for the nations And Lord, we'd all have to admit collectively that we need our ears unstopped, our eyes opened. We need our hearts softened. We want to have a heart like you. Would you give us that new heart today, Lord? Would you make us good soil, receptive soil for the seed of the word of God? Make us more like you, Lord. Teach us wonderful things from your word. Have your way among us, Lord. We're here to hear what you have to say and to conform our lives into what you'd have us to be. Thank you for your grace and your love for us. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. 
Take two is the message. Verse 29 is the starting point. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. Now, the there where he departed from was the region of Tyre and Sidon. The only time that Jesus actually left the physical borders of Israel proper was when he went to deliver the Syrophoenician's daughter from demonic possession. And when Jesus went there, he crossed uh, outside the border of Israel, went along the Mediterranean coast, and I suggested to you that he went there for one crying heart. It was a mother who had a daughter that was possessed, and perhaps she had dabbled in the occult and opened the door to the enemy. I don't know for sure, but Jesus arrived in that area. We found in the Gospel of Mark that we could make the case that Jesus was in a house, and perhaps uh, this happened during a meal. The woman showed up, a Canaanite woman, as Matthew describes, or a pagan woman, and she began crying out to the Lord, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy. She kept crying out and crying out. Now, it's quite possible, and I said that this might make sense of some of the dialogue and imagery that Jesus was at a dinner table with his disciples, and the woman was outside the house, and she kept crying out. And at first, remember, Jesus does not respond to her cries. I proposed, this is my own speculation, that perhaps Jesus was waiting to see what the 12 would do. And the 12 said, Lord, they were so spiritual, get rid of her. That's a loose translation. They actually said, send her away. She's crying out to us. We're sick of it. We're trying to eat our falafel. So Jesus says to them, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. And then she kept at it. And I don't know if she came in the house at this point, but she ends up at Jesus' feet, bowed down at his feet. And she continues to persevere in her ask. And Jesus says, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. That sounds a little offensive, but he was using the vernacular of the day, probably at a dinner table. And the Gentiles in the Jewish mind were considered dogs, like outside of the covenant community. And she famously replied, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Remember that? And Jesus said, oh, woman, you have such great faith. And that very hour, her daughter was delivered from demonic possession. And we basked in the beauty of that healing. We tried to imagine together what that home would have been like that evening as they celebrated the grace of God and how many stories were told of the goodness of God. And Jesus did this miracle. And this miracle, I believe, was at least in part for the disciples. I think Jesus was wanting to see what they might do with this woman, this woman outside of Israel, so to speak. And so on from there he went, and he moved along, look at verse 29, the Sea of Galilee, where he did the bulk of his ministry. And having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. Now Jesus, uh, when he began the Sermon on the Mount, was seated and he began to teach. We don't know if he was getting ready to teach or he was already teaching. But this is a beautiful image, and it's captured in Isaiah and perhaps some other places where the king is seated on the mountain or on his throne, and the nations come streaming to him. They come to the God of Jacob, if you will, to find healing and strength. So Jesus is up on the mountain, and Mark locates uh, where Jesus is in Mark 7.31. He says that Jesus was in the area of the Decapolis. This is, let me just read it for you. I think it's up on the screen. Again, 
He went out from the region of Tyre. That's where he did that healing for the woman and her daughter. Came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. And he ended up there within the region of the Decapolis. Now, the region of the Decapolis, uh, the map's up for you right now. You can see in the red box, there's the word Decapolis. Now, that's two Greek words. It's Deca and Polis. The Ten Commandments are known as the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, or literally the Ten Words. The Decapolis was the Ten Cities. Polis is the word for cities. Deca is the word for ten. So Jesus had been here one other time in his ministry. And in this area of the Decapolis, there were 10 famous Greek cities. They were founded by the Greeks. And then they were kind of uh, taken over by the, Roman, the Romans. And what they were were sophisticated pagan cities. In fact, archaeologists have uh, dug up a lot of different things from this particular region of the Decapolis. The cities were... In, uh, these were the following names. Scythopolis, Hippos, Gadara, Pella, Philadelphia, Gerasa, Dion, Canatha, Rafana, and Damascus. Now, Damascus is the only city that remains to this day. But they found, uh, as they dug up the uh, archaeological finds, uh, they were typical Greco-Roman cities. They found forums, pagan temples, bathhouses, theaters, hippodromes, and other accoutrements with, with, which went with paganism. They found temples to the different Greek gods and goddesses, including Zeus, Aphrodite, Athena, Artemis, Hercules, Dionysus, and Demeter. So this is all archaeological finds in this area. So very much, while within the borders of Israel proper, still very pagan, and this is in the area of the Golan Heights today on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes up probably in the hills and he's sitting there and he's been here one other time in this area of the Decapolis. And when he went the one other time, he went to heal another man who was crying out in his soul, I believe. And that was the man who had the legion of demons. Jesus uh, crossed over the sea. He, got, he went to the Decapolis. And there were actually two demon-possessed men, but the gospels largely focus on the one man. He ran up to Jesus. And you remember what happened. Jesus healed that man. And that man was in this area of the Decapolis. And when the disciples went to this location, they probably had to be wondering, Lord, why are we here? The sacred animal for the, those people was the pig. That was a no-no for the Jews, right? An unclean animal. You may have wondered when you've read this story before, how is it that there's a pig farmer with 2,000 pigs and the demons you know, go into the pigs? What are pigs doing in Israel? Well, this was actually a pagan area. So while still within the boundaries, it was very pagan. They would call it Hellenistic, very Greek, very, uh, you know, with a pantheon of gods and goddesses. And it would be considered like an unclean area to the Jewish mind. Now, Jesus had gone there, and when he had gone there, he delivered this man, and the people asked him to leave. This is Luke 8, 35 through 39. We'll put it up on the screen. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus, Luke 8, 35, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. And those who, those who had seen it reported to 
to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding districts asked him, what? Can you hold some further uh, healing meetings? Can you tell us more about the gospel? No, they actually asked Jesus to leave. They asked him to to part from their area. Why? Luke tells us they were gripped with great fear. And he got into the boat, honored their request, and returned. But the man for whom the demons had gone out was begging Jesus that he might accompany him. He wanted to be something of a missionary. Basically said, Lord, wherever you go, that's where I want to be. But Jesus sent him away and said famously, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now the people asked Jesus to leave right after this healing, and Luke tells us why. We might think that maybe it was a typical, you know, kind of contemporary response, like, I don't want to hear that, or get out of here with that gospel stuff. But actually, the Bible tells us that the people were gripped with fear at the presence of Jesus. You know, James 2.19 says, the demons even believe that God is one and they shudder. They're afraid of him. I can't help but think of the Home Alone movie when little Kevin is running away from the bad guys who are not too bright. And remember, he runs into a church and they pull the van up and they're trying to grab him and when he runs into a church, they say to one another, I'm I'm not going in there. I'm I'm not going to go in there. Something about a church scared them. I I have a friend that's since passed away. I played high school baseball with him, and we partied together for a couple of years, and I had become a Christian, and I had left those things behind, and he was still involved in them, and I was inviting him to church, and I remember one Sunday he came, and the elements of communion were coming down the, the aisle as they are going to at the end of this service, And I remember there was a look of fear on his face as he let the communion elements pass him by. And it was right, because he wasn't a Christian. He was just there visiting, so he shouldn't have taken the elements. But literally, there was fear on his face. Do you know that it's possible that some people may stay away from the things of God because they're afraid? They're fearful. And you know, they should be. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But I'm not sure that we think about that in a contemporary culture where a lot of people will push away the gospel or reject it. I'm not sure if we often think that they might be fearful. Like they don't know what to expect. Like walking into a Christian church, as comfortable as many of you will be when you walk in because you're used to what goes on and you know what to expect, other people don't. And maybe, maybe they think that they're going to be, you know, the lightning bolt will hit them at the back door. You know, you've had your friends tell you that, I don't want to come in that place. Right? Lightning will probably strike. And you just tell them, we'll back up 10 feet. You know, if God's going to strike you, our, we'll alert our ushers, you know, upon your arrival. <laughs> and so they asked him to leave and he left. And the question is, if You've ever been asked to leave or take a hike or maybe you tried to witness to someone and they said, no, thank you. Get in your car or your boat and get out of here. Would you go back? Would you do a take two and do a second shot at trying to witness to someone? 
I was in the gym with a friend of mine some years ago, and we began to witness to a man who was very well put together, and uh, we, we began to just share the gospel, and we asked him some questions, and he said, basically, I, I would describe him as a brick wall. He said, no, I want nothing to do with that. How can Jesus be the only way to God? What about other sincere people in other religions? And on and on he went. He was about over here on every topic. I, that I was here, he was over here. Spiritual stuff, politics, you name it. And he went down his list up and down. He was pretty articulate, pretty smart guy. And when it was over, about a half an hour dialogue, I told my friend, I don't think that guy's ever coming to the Lord. Have you ever said that before? No way. Just check them off the list. They're, they're not coming, right? So I go back to the gym a couple months later, and this man comes up to me and tells me he rededicated his life to the Lord. He told me that he had been a Christian, and he was working in a profession where he had compromised himself at a particular club that I won't give you any more detail about. He was in compromise, and he said that he was fighting us because there was a level of conviction and guilt and when we, we just gave him a couple of basic scriptures and just tried to reason with him from the scriptures, well, that word did not come back void. And he gave his life back to the Lord. And I thought, of all the witnessing opportunities I've had over the years, I thought, oh, that guy's done. He's, 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 you know, there's no penetrating him. And yet the Lord worked. Are you willing to do a take two with some family members, some friends that maybe you've shared with before and you kind of wrote them off? Or you think, well, maybe they just, they, they don't listen, you know. But the Lord didn't give up on us, amen? How many of you came to the Lord the first time you heard the gospel? Bam, it was over. No, some of us fought the Lord. Some of us heard the gospel multiple times. And the Lord kept pursuing us because he's a God of grace. That's why he goes back to this area. There's a take two for the people of the Decapolis. Let me just share a couple scriptures about the nations that were over there. Uh, the rabbis believe that the seven nations represented that got kicked out of the promised land uh, when he judged them through Israel were in these, or located, the remnants of them were located in these cities. Two scriptures. Joshua 3.10 says, Joshua said, by this you will know that the living God is among you that he will assuredly dispossess from before you, here's seven nations, the Canaanites, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Just keep the number seven in your pocket. And when he had destroyed Acts 13, 19, Paul's preaching here, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land, that is the land of Israel, as an inheritance. Now, this number seven is really interesting and it's going to be prominent in our text. But the rabbis thought, okay, this is where the, the pagan people ended up on the other side of the river, the remnants of them as well. Or, um, yeah, as well. Now, in Mark 5, let's flip over in our Bibles. Just the next book to you, right? Mark chapter 5. I want to show you the mention of the Decapolis and the focus of Mark's account of the demon-possessed man. Look at Mark 5. We're going to read 18 through 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, Mark 5, 18, the man who had been demon-possessed was begging him that he might accompany him. Mark 5, 19. Jesus did not let him go, but he said to him, go home to your people 
and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he, that man, man who had been possessed, went away and began to proclaim notice in Decapolis. Now there's our area. What great things Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now Jesus returns a second time back to Matthew chapter 15 after this man has done his missionary work. Sometimes we think, oh, the best thing I could do is get in a boat and go to this location. Some of you have a heart for missions and, and you want to do cross-cultural missions and that's wonderful. But I would say this to you. Have you crossed the street to share the gospel before you cross an ocean? Have you, do you have a heart that during your week you could use your story of God's mercy and grace in your life to share with others? Do you know that everyone that you meet on this earth is facing their own mortality, living with a fear of death, whether they admit it or not? You have a mission field all around you. And sometimes all you have to do is simply share your story. Amen? Just say, this is what the Lord has done for me. I'm not a theologian. I don't even have a ton of Bible verses memorized. But one thing I know, I was in darkness and now I'm in the light of God. I was blind, but now I see. Church, that's our job. To go into the world and share the good news of the gospel. Well, this man had done his job because when you look at Matthew 15, 30, notice what happens now. Jesus' second visit, oh, they're not kicking him out. It says, verse 30, great multitudes came to Jesus as he's sitting in the area of the Golan Heights, on a hill probably, and bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb or mute, and many others, they laid them down at his feet and Jesus healed them. Now, I wonder how long they were waiting, how long the formerly demon-possessed man shared his story, but he was very effective, and that's why Jesus said, no, you're gonna stay here and do your job. Seeds were planted, and now Jesus shows up for a second and final visit in the Decapolis, only two times that I know of that he comes here, and now the people were waiting for him. They had all these people who had all these terrible things that they were facing, and what did they do? They came... And they laid them down at Jesus' feet. Remember the demon-possessed man in his right mind at Jesus' feet? And now they come and lay the, all these people. Look at the list. Quite a list of patients. The lame, the crippled, the blind, the mute, and many, many others. I don't know how long this went on, but on those hills, right on the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was touching one after another. Can you imagine the celebration and excitement that was going on? The word is interesting here because the word to lay them at his feet is ripto. If you're interested, R-H-I-P-T-O. It's a word that has a little bit of like violence to it. It means to throw down something. Uh, it's used in the book of Acts chapter 27, I think verse 19, of throwing cargo off a ship to lighten the ship. These people came and said, here, <laughs> take, take my loved one, take my friend, take my family. <laughs> Not literally, my whole family. And, and heal them, Lord, do something with them. He, they were throwing them literally down, hurling them at the Lord's feet. In Matthew 9, 36, the word ripto is used for people who were downcast, like thrown down with their problems, like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus had compassion on them. You know, I often pray 
from this pulpit or before we start a service, Lord, we lay this service at your feet. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying, Lord, this is too big for any one of us. But you can heal, you can touch, you can transform. We lay this at your feet. We've got to get better at that. Amen? We're called in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast all our cares to him because he cares for us. We're to literally hurl, fling our cares to his feet. I know what you're thinking. Some of you go, I do that, but then I keep taking them back. I understand what you're saying. Do you know that right after 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety to him because he cares for you, here's what the Bible says. For you have an enemy who goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you become more vulnerable when you don't cast your cares to the Lord. You become more susceptible to the enemy. Let me just give you a little bit on this. Yesterday, we had a men's breakfast, and Sherman preached on the helmet of salvation. And he brought out a couple of interesting things, and he was saying, you know, when, when you're dealing with spiritual warfare, one aspect of spiritual warfare will be that doubts and questions will flood your mind, and you'll sometimes wonder, where did that come from? The enemy, when he came into the garden, he said to Eve, did God really say? Sometimes you get these doubts and questions, and you're like, where did that come from? That could be spiritual warfare. And the way that you counter that is you put on your helmet. The word salvation, by the way, in the Bible also is synonymous with the word deliverance. He will deliver you. Paul's writing in Ephesians 6 to Christians, brethren. He's saying, look, when you put on the helmet, you'll be delivered from the spiritual warfare that takes place right here. And isn't this most of the battle right here? <laughs> How often do I need to fling my cares and concerns and anxieties and family members I'm worried about and things I rotate over and over in my brain? You ever have some sleepless nights because you're worrying about all the what-ifs and all the questions and all the concerns and the people and the situations and all of that, and you want to lay them at the Lord's feet, but it can be hard. You put on that helmet of salvation, and the Lord delivers you because he reminds you that the battle's not yours. You can't control what those people do. You can't control the outcome of most of those scenarios, but you can lay them at his feet. Some of you need to take two or take three, <laughs> or take four. And you need to put those things afresh at God's feet. And the amazing thing is that Jesus wants them. He wants to bear your burdens and carry your sorrows. And I, and I will tell you, there's, there's times uh, in my own heart where I have a lot going on or something big the next day, and I can have sleepless nights, and I can have things rotating. And I remember hearing Elisa Childers, and she was talking about uh, she'll do an apologetics conference, and the night before, for some reason, she can't sleep. And she'll cry out to the Lord, Lord, please give me, have you ever been here before? Give me an hour. All I'm asking for is an hour of sleep. And she says that sleep will flee from her, and she's made a decision. She says, well, if the Lord decides that he's not going to answer that prayer to give me sleep, then I guess he wants me to be in my weakness tomorrow so his strength will be more manifest. Amen? So sometimes, you know, you're, you're going through that and you just go, well, I guess you want me to be 
weak tomorrow, Lord, at least in my flesh, so you can be strong through me. So I'm going to get up and pray, take a shower and get going, right? I mean, that's, that's what we face. So the people came and I think you can see an urgency to them and they, they put the people before them. The, the vast crowd, New Living, brought the lame, the blind, the crippled, those who couldn't speak, many others. They laid them down before Jesus and he healed them. It's a beautiful passage from Isaiah 35. I, I want you to see it. It's a prophecy about the Messiah and what he would do. This is Isaiah 35, three through six. It says, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, Say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And on those hills, brethren, I think people were leaping for joy and shouting a praise and a hallelujah and an amen and isn't he good? And I think there was just all kinds of worship going on and people kept coming and Jesus kept touching them and coming and that is our Lord. In an area where he was kicked out where the disciples probably said, why are we back here again among the pagan people who like the oinkers? They like the pig, come on. That wasn't even in my notes, that was totally free. <laughs> but Jesus is gracious. Now I want you to see one, one more time back to Mark 7, the next book to your right. This was a, a healing that occurred in the midst of that Ministry that Mark highlights, and it's really an interesting and sort of gross healing. Take a look, Mark 7, 32. Now remember, the Jews thought this was an unclean area and all of this stuff. Mark 7, 32, a parallel account. They brought to Jesus one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they entreated him to lay his hand upon him. Jesus took him aside from the multitude by himself put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And all God's people said, what? Did you know that your Lord apparently spit in public at times? And in this case, he spit, took his saliva, and touched that man's mute tongue, and unstopped his deaf ears. And if one of the disciples was kind of peeking over there, they're like, what is he doing? He's swapping spit with the pagans. This can't be right. What do you think the message is that Jesus used his saliva to do this healing? Well, the, of course, the, the, the Jewish leadership thought the area was unclean, but think about it. Jesus' life was, you could say, in his spittle. And as he touched this man, he was giving the man his life. But here's another thing to think about. What was the problem with the Jewish people as a whole and the disciples, even at this point, their ears were plugged to God's truth. They failed to speak his word. He will heal a blind man a little bit later. They had blind eyes. 
And Jesus was always trying to get them to understand and see, like I think he's trying to do in my life. Amen? There's times when I need my ears touched. I need my mouth touched. I need his life to come into me. And I think that's the message here. You can see Jesus probably maybe overwhelmed by the unbelief and even the what sin does to creation, all these sick people. He looked up to heaven, 34, with a deep sigh. And he said to him, Afatha, that's Aramaic for be opened. And his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished saying, he's done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. If you get a second crack at the grace of God in your life, don't let it pass you by. Amen? If the Lord shows up and is knocking at your door, if you're a prodigal today and you've been away from the Lord and you wondered if you should even come here today or maybe you're watching live stream, let me tell you, God is the God of take two and three and four and many, many chances, but don't ignore his voice. Hear his voice. Jesus even did something similar to the man born blind where he spit in the dirt and made mud and put it on his eyes. And the multitude, Matthew tells us in 1531, we're gonna move quickly now. The multitude marveled when they saw the dumb speaking, Matthew 1531, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and this confirms that they were Gentiles and they glorified the God of Israel. It's the only place you'll see this in the Bible, in the New Testament, the God of Israel. They were, they were Gentiles, but they knew the God of Israel was the true God and they were glorifying him and celebrating and it was a beautiful day. And Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I feel compassion for the multitude. Can you, can you feel the disciples? Oh, no. You gave it the office. You came back to a place they kicked you out of. We're here in this pagan area. You're using your saliva to heal people. Come on. How much good does somebody need to do in one day? You feel compassion? You've been compassionate. Well, the people have remained with me for three days and they've got nothing to eat and I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Sound familiar? How are we going to feed all these people? And you would expect that the disciples on take two are going to have a better response to God, right? Like we all do. You guys usually get it right the second time you're tested by the Lord, right? You guys all, all got it figured out? So what are the very spiritual disciples going to do? Jesus says, look, I don't want to send these people away hungry. They've been hanging out. They, they didn't pack a lunch. Can you imagine one of the disciples? That's their problem. <laughs> they, if they didn't prepare that, why is that my problem? I, gave, I wrote a check at the office when one of those little charities was coming by and, you know, I'm good. I got my turkey sandwich and I'm going to eat it. I was in the church office some years ago and a guy came in and he was selling copiers. He said, would you listen to my pitch? And I said, yeah, I'll listen to yours if you listen to mine. <laughs> so he told me about his copier, which I said no to. And then <laughs> I shared the gospel with him. 
And I said, do you go to church anywhere? And he goes, actually, last Sunday, I went to the Crystal Cathedral. And that, this was years ago, and at the time, it was Robert Schuler, and wasn't a whole lot of substance there. Uh, they would interview a celebrity, sing some worship songs, a little bit of scripture would be shared, but not much. Schuler was more of a motivational speaker or one of these guys, positive thinking guys. Not that you shouldn't be positive, but anyway. But here's what this young man told me. I said, well, what was it like? Tell me about your experience. He said, this is a direct quote. I went there empty and I left empty. And I was heartbroken. Because that's not what we ever want to do in the church, amen? We want to send people away full, not empty. I say to my pastor brothers all over the United States, stop that. Stop watering it down for the sake of numbers and give the people the word of God, the food of, the food of heaven, amen? That's what we need. So Jesus says, look, they, they've been with me and yeah, a lot of ministry's gone on, but I want to feed them. So he said, the disciples said to him, well, where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude. Now, you gotta be saying, really? But we all know that sometimes the Lord's worked in our life, maybe a couple years ago, he met a need or it, something miraculous happened, but we don't always believe for the next one, do we? And the disciples were very much in the same boat. And so, you know, we could say deja vu all over again. Are they gonna do any better? Well, he said, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? <laughs> and they said, seven and a few small fish. Now, you got to get out of your mind like a loaf of bread. This, these would be like little thin pieces of bread. Seven might sort of satisfy the 12 disciples. We're going to learn that there's 4,000 men plus women and children. I want you to imagine about 4,000 families out there, maybe 20,000 people. And they have seven pieces of bread. And this time, it's not a little boy. It's my seven loaves. And those people are Gentiles. And if they didn't pack their lunch, <laughs> that's their problem, Lord. It's mine. <laughs> right? Well, seven is a significant number. But I want you to think about something else. Maybe they're thinking, I'm not giving my food to those Gentile people. Maybe if we're on the other side of the lake and I had the lunch, I would have offered it, but, but they're, they're unclean people. They're, they're not of us. They're not the covenant people. Why should I give up my bread for them? Do, do you reflect back to the story with the woman who in, in the regions of Tyre and Sidon said, I'll take the crumbs? Do you think that that interchange was about the disciples as much as it was about that woman? Do you think that they heard Jesus commend her for her faith? I'll take, I'll take the crumbs, Lord. Jesus was trying to make a point to them. You're gonna take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You're gonna take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You're gonna have to cross over, Peter into the Gentile house of Cornelius. The gospel's for the Jew and the Gentile. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to make a point. He's saying, I want you to give your bread now. Take it and offer it to them. Well, apparently they uh, acquiesced because Jesus directed the multitude to sit down 
on the ground. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, leads me beside quiet waters. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, in the previous account of the feeding of the 5,000, he looked up to heaven. He broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples in turn to the multitudes. Now, Jesus could have just had the multitudes line up. Come on, here's some bread, here's some bread, but he didn't do that. He gave them to the disciples to then give them away. Why? Because he wanted them to learn how to give the gospel to all people. We take the bread of God and we give it away. Amen? We, we trust that the Lord will do his work with it, but our job is to take it from our Lord and give it away. And so, you, I don't know how many hours went by, but it seems like the bread multiplied in his hands. I'd love to see some video footage. And he kept giving it to them, and they kept coming back. And you can imagine it was, it was some work to thousands of people, and the disciples are the main carriers of the bread. And Jesus is making a spiritual point. You're going to go out. It's going to be some work. You're, you're going to touch these people. You're going to interact with them. You're, you're going to cross some boundaries. Enough of this stuff about, you know, Who's clean and unclean? Everyone needs the gospel. Amen. And so they all ate. They were satisfied, 37, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces. And what did they have left? Seven large baskets full. When Jesus fed the Jewish people on the other side of the lake, how many baskets did they pick up? You remember? Twelve. On the Gentile side of the lake, they pick up seven. Twelve represents the 12 tribes. You can think of the 12 apostles. It represents the Jew. Jesus says, I am the bread of life to the Jew. He does the other miracle on the other side of the lake for the Gentiles. Seven baskets are picked up, indicative of the seven nations pushed out of Canaan by Joshua. I am the bread of life for the Gentile, for the seven. Amen? Jew and Gentile. Beautiful gospel picture here. Seven baskets full. Whenever you give your bread to the Lord, you always get more back than you gave. And by the way, this Greek word for basket means a large hamper. It's the word used when Paul was lowered down in the basket in the book of Acts. It's a bigger basket. Some uh, scholars believe it represents that many more Gentiles were going to come into the kingdom as the years went by. Just perhaps. This is from O'Donnell. He says, since the fourth century, if not earlier, Christian commentators have understood the feeding of the 5,000 to symbolize Jesus' provision for the Jew and the feeding of the 4,000 is provision for the Gentiles. Some of the church fathers, many of them Gentiles, believe that the number 4,000 symbolized the four corners of the earth as the sheet comes down in Acts chapter 10, from which Gentiles came. Also, the number seven, interestingly enough, appearing three times, seven, seven, seven in our text, they saw to symbolize the perfect and worldwide scope of Jesus' message. Further, the numbers seven and 70 are also representative of the Gentile populations. According to the list of nations in Genesis 10, there were 70 nations in the world. And so the, the beautiful symbolism, they pick up the seven baskets, the Lord has fed the people, and they're content. That's what the gospel will do. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. 
And Jesus, sending away the multitudes, got into the boat, and he came to the region of Magadan. Some of your Bibles may say Magdala. Uh, Bible uh, scholars um, were not able to locate Magadan, so they thought maybe it was a scribal error in some of the manuscripts through time, and they changed it to Magdala, which was the hometown of Mary Magdalene. Uh, but I will say that Magadan, probably like a lot of locations in biblical history, may not be located yet, but it was probably in a similar area. And so I think we go with the original uh, way the Bible was written. And just to confirm that there's two separate feedings, just flip one page to Matthew 16 and look at this dialogue. And now we're gonna, we're gonna enjoy communion in just a moment. So... The disciples began to discuss 16.7 among themselves. They said, is it because we took no bread? Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? How many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000? Notice Jesus Unlike a lot of scholars who want to say, oh, this is just a literary motif and it's a repetition of the feeding of the 5,000 and it's just, this is not original. No, it is. Jesus did many miracles more than once. How many times did he open blind eyes on stuff, deaf ears, heal the lame? He repeated some miracles and it's not hard to understand why as we've seen the picture. Don't you remember the seven loaves for the 4,000 that you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus knew it was two separate miracles. Amen? For Jew and Gentile. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us as we now come to your table and we practice something that you instituted when you instituted the new covenant, when you took the bread and the cup and you shared it with your disciples and you said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is my body, which is for you, my blood. We know the next day you would seal that covenant and the church for 2,000 years has been coming to this table to remind us of the bread of God and the precious blood of Jesus Christ and how we're saved through that. Lord, as we um, have an opportunity to enjoy uh, that table, to know that we've been invited to that table, I wanna pray over the saints right now that you would uh, encourage them to lay things at your feet, prodigals to have a take two and come home, those of us who have witnessed to others and maybe given up to, to have a take two on concerted prayer and effort in their direction. Maybe it's a take two for some of us to lay down our problems afresh or our shortcomings. Whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that uh, you administer to your people as we enjoy this uh, celebration of what you've done for us. I wanna ask you with your heart and head bowed, if you've not met Jesus, if you've been far away or maybe you've never met the Jesus of the Bible, he calls upon you to turn away from your sin and trust him. He loved you so much, he died on the cross 
defeated death through his resurrection and invites you to trust him. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what's happened to you. You can be born again to this living hope, but you must reach out the hand. You must come to his feet. You must ask him to save you, and he will. He is faithful. Cry out to him right now. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your commandments many times. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for coming into this broken world and paying the price for my sin. Thank you for defeating death. I'm afraid of it, but I know that in you I can have hope. Oh, cry out to him, my friend. Don't wait. This is take two. You don't know how many chances you're going to get. Trust him now as your Lord and your Savior, and he will save you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all your blessings in our life. In Christ's name, amen. All right, the elements are coming by. Would you hold them, and we'll take them together in a a few minutes. remember um, the story of Mary and Martha in the book of Luke. Martha was preparing a spaghetti dinner for Jesus. That's in the Greek. Trust me. She was making a meal for the Lord. And remember Martha, you know, I I would imagine that that there was some pressure that that all came out nicely. And and Mary was seated at Jesus' feet. 
And Martha got upset and said, Lord, tell, tell that sister of mine to get up and get in the kitchen. Jesus said, no. He said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and concerned about so many things. But only one thing is really needed. And your sister, she's chosen the better part. When we come to the Lord's table, we have a chance to choose the better part. We have a chance to lay things afresh at his feet. And I know if you're like me, there's a lot of things that we struggle with and we wrestle with and people we're concerned about and situations. And this is an opportunity to take the Lord at his word and cast your burdens to him and let him carry them because he loves you. Your biggest burden is your need for salvation if you're not a Christian. But if that's settled, then the rest of this is just about your walk with him and what he has for you. And he's good. Even if you're in a season of, you know, difficulty and struggle, he's good. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. In the same manner, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand for the last song.
So after the first service, I had a young lady come up to me, and she'd been coming here for a couple of months. And she was invited by a friend, and she has been through some trials lately, some hard trials. And she said, um, the con- this congregation is amazing. The number of people who've shown me the kindness of Christ prayed for me. She just couldn't say enough good things about what happens in this place. And I just wanted to tell you guys, that, that means a lot to show your heart when you embrace people that visit, when you reach out the hand, when you pray for someone next to you, you have a sense that they need prayer. That, that's beautiful. That's what ministry is all about. It's just so good. So uh, as we are going to depart from one another, just a couple of reminders. In the courtyard, 2B1 Ministries taking signups for the Valentine's dinner, or at least sharing information. The women's ministry has the book for the upcoming Bible study. And then, of course, we have Sean and Hector's out there from Love Life as well to share with you, give you uh, specifics on the walk on Saturday. The walk is from 9 to 1030 this coming Saturday at Low Park in Riverside. I would encourage you to step out and come. I'll be there. Pastor Shane will be there. Many others. And uh, I think last time we had almost 200 from Living Truth come. And it was, a, it was a great day. So give 90 minutes of your day. Uh, all we're going to be doing is worshiping, sharing some scripture, walking by, and praying. Okay? And uh, it's, I, think, I think it'll open your eyes to some, some amazing things that the Lord wants to do with your life. So anyway, with that, don't forget about the midweek Wednesday night. We're going through the book of Judges. Uh, if you need prayer, have questions about walking with the Lord, or if we've never met before and you're new to the church, I would love to meet you and know who you are and how long you've been coming. So please uh, take advantage of that. There'll be many people up here to pray with you if you need that. Okay? God bless you all. Enjoy your Sunday.